Leviticus 16 this morning, and what a wonderful and important and big chapter it is. I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my boys recently, reading it aloud to them, which has been just a really delightful experience and has provided for me kind of an illustration for you this morning about how, how I want us to come to this text and come away from this particular text. Narnia, if you don't know, is this other world where anything is possible, wherein the main characters of the novels sometimes slip in and out of. They can go into Narnia and they have all kinds of adventures. And then when they return to our world, almost no time has passed. So the the section or the little section I'm going to read to you, uh, we come to it uh, by way of the children being away from Narnia for a whole calendar year in our time. But when they go back to Narnia, they discover that in Narnia, thousands of years have passed and that all the adventures that they had had previously are almost forgotten. And even the great king, Aslan the lion, hasn't been seen for thousands of years. And our our heroes are traveling along, they're on a long journey, and they're sleeping when in the middle of the night, one of them is awakened by the voice that she loves most in the world. Lucy, she hears the sound of the voice. She doesn't do anything at first. And then she hears it again, Lucy. And she gets herself out of bed and begins searching for the source of the voice. She makes her way through the Narnian moonlight into the midst of trees that seem to be swaying and singing. And eventually, as she goes through those trees rhythmically, almost to be dancing with them, she finds herself in an open glade. And this is what we read. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes, with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, joy, for he was there. The huge lion, shining white in the moonlight, with his huge black shadow underneath of him. Lucy rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew, she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last, she sobbed. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched his, her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I love that picture and that image because it gives us a flavor of what happens in the Christian life. As we come to know God more and more, we come to see him as bigger and more magnificent and more beautiful. 
And I think that's what happens when we come to a brilliant text such as this. We, we come to it and we study it and we walk away and we get a glimpse of God and we just recognize that he is bigger than we conceived prior. Indeed, I hope that we walk away from this text this morning seeing that God's holiness is greater than we ever imagined and that his grace is greater than we ever wished. The main idea this morning is this, that God puts the sins of his people onto a substitutionary sacrifice so that their sins can be forgiven and forgotten. I want to exhort you to recognize God's holiness. Repent of your sins and receive God's grace. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this time we have to spend together this morning, and we ask that you would meet us here once more. We have gathered together as those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, ready to encounter you, and so we come into your presence this morning, gathered as your people, full of your Holy Spirit, and we ask you to speak so that we might hear. Oh God, change us. Enlarge our hearts so that we can love you more deeply. Fill our capacities for joy to overflowing as we capture a bigger sight of your majesty. Oh, help us to see you in this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to read the whole chapter to begin. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat or atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. Because I appear in the cloud above the atonement cover. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering or a purification offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Next, he will take two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, He is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for Azazel is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for Azazel. When Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. 
Then he is to take a fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat that is over the ark of testimony or else he will die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the east side of the atonement cover. Then he will sprinkle some of the blood with his finger before the atonement cover seven times. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way. For all the sins because of the Israelites, impurities, and rebellious acts, he will do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by their impurities. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the most holy place until he leaves after he has made atonement for himself and his household and the whole assembly of Israel. Then he will go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He is to take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns and on all the sides of the altar. He is to sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse and set it apart from the Israelites' impurities. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. Then Aaron is to enter the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he wore when he entered the most holy place, and leave them there. He will bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes. Then he must go out and sacrifice his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering. He will make atonement for himself and for the people. He is to burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who released the goat for an uninhabitable place is to wash his clothes and to bathe his body with water. Afterward, he may re-enter the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the purification offering whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be brought outside the camp and their hide, flesh, and waste burned. The one who burns them is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water afterward. He may re-enter the camp. This is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. The priest who is appointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his father will make atonement. He will put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the most holy place. He will make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar, and he will make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. This is to be a permanent statute for you to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And all this was done as the Lord commanded Moses.
as we come to this chapter, we find that it immediately draws our attention back to chapter 10. When Nadab and Abihu tried to approach God according to their own designs. And as a result, were consumed by God's fire, his holy presence. Indeed, they were killed. Now, this text, we, we could have picked up right here, right after chapter 10. But instead, we have this interruption wherein we find these laws about ritual purity, which are designed to teach us about God's holiness and the people's impurity. What we learn is that we cannot just approach God however we want. People cannot just come to worship God in any way they deem fit. He is not malleable. He's not changeable. He doesn't shift like the times. We can't just come and honor him in any way we decide we think it might honor him. No, God is holy and he has spoken. The God who is speaks and he has determined how he will be worshipped. He cannot be approached casually. And if he is, the result is dangerous. It certainly was in the case of Nadab and Abihu who were consumed by fire. We've been saying over and over again that God is holy. That's one of the, the primary theme of this book is holiness. And you could look at everything we've covered, all the ground we've covered to this point, as conveying one big thing, that God is holy. And the Day of Atonement kind of breaks it up. And then the second half of the book is, so you, as his people, are to be holy. We've said, well, what does this mean? What does holiness mean? Simply, there's kind of two ways to think about it. God is holy in that he is completely other than. He's distinct from us. And then secondly, that he is all-powerful, that he's pure, he's great, and he's good. Holiness simply defined means to be distinct or set apart, to be unique. So when we say God is holy, we are calling attention to the profound difference between him and all of the creatures that he has created. Holiness refers to God's transcendent majesty, his power, and his purity. Have you ever, for me it would be the summertime, but I guess you could do this in the winter. Have you ever, in the middle of the night, gotten up and gone outside and just cocked your head back and stared at the stars? Billions and billions of them hanging there like ornaments in the sky. And you think, there are so Many of them. This is incredible. Maybe you think about how vast the universe is and how small you are. Now, that feeling you get in that moment gives you an idea of God's transcendent majesty, his holiness, his other thanness. It's awe inspiring. A similar thing might happen when, if you would come to the edge of the Grand Canyon and stand looking at it. You'd go, wow. Or the oceans. Or even the scenery in the mountains that surround us. You get a sense of awe. No one staring up at the stars in that moment 
turns to the person next to them and says, that's really great, but have you seen my Facebook page? It's pretty incredible. Now, there is a sense of majesty. This is what we're, what we're getting at when we talk of God's holiness. It is awesome and good. It's bigger than us. But God's holiness is also, it's also dangerous. It is a threat. Uh, earlier, I mean, it was probably a couple years ago now, at some point in my life, I don't remember when, uh, I went with my children to the Philadelphia Zoo and they have a lion exhibit there, and it really is incredible. Uh, you know, they've got the little enclosure, and there's just glass, maybe like, I don't know, maybe like an inch thick between you and the lion. And typically in the past when I've gone to zoos, they just kind of lounge around and lay there, and they don't really even pay attention to you. They don't care. Uh, but on this occasion, uh, we were standing you know, right next to the glass, and we're watching it, and this thing stands up and walks all the way up to the glass so that only maybe over an inch is between me, my family, and this lion. It was awesome, right? I took a little selfie. I don't usually do that, but I tried. I got my phone out. I took a picture of the boys. This is lion there. It's like, he's right next to us. We're so close. It was awesome. It was wonderful. Encountering a lion in the right circumstances can be really pleasant. But if we were to remove that interso of class, or thinking about a different situation. Thinking about a very dangerous situation. Encountering a lion in the wrong circumstances could be fatal. So too with God's holiness. If we come to God according to his word, oh, it is a wonderful and pleasant experience. But if we try to go before God, in our own way, according to our own merits, well, it is dangerous. Because God's holiness is opposed to sinfulness. God's holiness is opposed to evil. It will break out against it. That's the picture we have of Nadab and Abihu, sinful men trying to go into the Holy of Holies and offer to God unauthorized or strange fire, something he had not commanded. And the result is they die. This God is not to be trifled with. He is a threat to all that is sinful, including you and I. Since I started with Lewis, I can't not quote this. Everybody's familiar with it. Uh, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is explaining to the children who Aslan is for the first time. And he says this, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Love that quote. It tells us a little bit about God's holiness. He is awesome and he is dangerous. 
It is dangerous for sinners to try and live together with the holy God. His holiness threatens them. And that's the big conundrum in Leviticus, is it not? How can a holy God dwell or live with a sinful, unholy people without them dying? And the answer we've said throughout is by God's grace through the sacrificial system. And a key component of the sacrificial system is this day of atonement in chapter 16. It's the holiest day in all of Israel. It's set apart on their calendar. This is a significant offering. And even on this day, when atonement is to be made, on Yom Kippur, it's still dangerous, even for the high priest to approach God. Even for Aaron, who is the holiest person in all of Israel, to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, where God's presence is most locally manifested, where he is enthroned, there is a cloud that has his direct presence where he says, I appear there. For Aaron to go into that space is dangerous, even though God has commanded it. Do you see that in verse 2? Says Aaron can't come whenever he wants into the Holy of Holies, in the holy place behind the curtain, or else he will die. Why will he die? Because I, this is God speaking, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And indeed, Aaron has to go once a year when he's able to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for himself and for the people, he has to go parading incense around in front of him to obscure his vision of this cloud. It's to make sure that he doesn't behold God in his fullness, or else he will die. That's for you in verse 13. More. When he goes into the holy place, the holy of holies, he is to wear these special linen garments. Look at verse 4. He is to wear a holy linen tunic, and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. Now this is a little interesting, because these linen garments amount to little more than a bed sheet, Right? Maybe in contemporary terms, it would be like, you need to put on these holy sweatpants before you come into the Holy of Holies. And that strikes us as odd because we know, as we've studied Leviticus and Exodus way, way long ago, that the clothing that the high priest wears, the high priestly garments, are awesome. Right? They're made from the rarest and the finest of fabrics, purples and blues, which are held together with little threads of gold, They've got those 12 luminous stones on the breastplate of judgment. It's got the, the golden plate on the turban. They are garments worthy of a ruler. You would think that Aaron would wear those garments to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you expect him to, to wear his Sunday best to go before the Lord? And yet that's not what we find. God tells him to wear these linen garments. Is this 
Is somehow disrespectful? No. See, Aaron wears these garments to demonstrate his and the people's humility. The point is, is that even when he, the most important person in Israel, goes before God, he comes with nothing. He has nothing to bring. He stands before God with no status, no emblem of office, no authority. He has nothing in and of himself to recommend himself to God. He can simply say, I come in obedience to your word. It really is striking. When Aaron speaks to the people for God, he wears the robes of the high priest. But when he speaks to God for the people, he wears simple, unadorned linen. Such a wonderful lesson is that this is how we come to God. We come to God not on the basis of our own merits, of our own goodness, of our own anything. We can only come to God humbly, with nothing in our hands, on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. To come before God any other way, well, that's dangerous. Because if, if we are not united to Christ by faith, we would be going before God in our sins and would fare no better than Nadab in a bayou. Aaron goes through all of these processes to go before the Lord and still, this day of atonement is just getting started. He is to come humbly clothed, parading incense before him, according to God's word, and he is to come with the blood of sacrifices. See that in verse 3, Aaron is to enter the most holy place with a young bull for a purification offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He, he comes only through the blood of another. And the sacrificial part of this chapter is really neat. There's some unique features to it, but there's really three main ways that atonement is made. First, the purification offering is offered on behalf of the priest's household, and then another purification offering on behalf of the people. You have the Azazel goat ceremony, which we'll get to, and then the burnt offering lastly. The burnt offering basically underscores everything that has taken place before and offers worship and praise to God for making atonement for the people's sins. And so we're going to focus our attention on some of the unique aspects of this day of atonement. The first of which, and the most obvious, is Aaron's procession into the Holy of Holies. It only happens once a year on this day. And he goes through to, to the Holy of Holies only through the blood of sacrifices. And so he makes these sacrifices. He goes in, as we read, and he, he sprinkles blood on and before the mercy seat of God, making atonement for himself and for his household. Then he goes out and he comes back in. And he offers the purification offering for the people. 
before the mercy seat, on the mercy seat. He, he comes out. He does that in the, the holy place where the incense altar is inside of the tent. Same thing on the incense altar, before the incense altar to make atonement for the tent. And then he comes out to the, the bronze altar and he applies the blood to the horns of the altar and sprinkles blood on the altar, again, to make atonement for, for the altar. Do you see that in verse 16? He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way. For all their sins, because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts, he will do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by their impurities. And we have the altar uh, being cleansed in verse 18. So we go, well, well, that's the purpose of this ritual, right? That's the purpose in verse 16. He's making atonement for the tabernacle and for these holy objects. The word atonement carries a lot of different weight with it, and all of them are in action throughout this chapter. Uh, it can, has all kinds of shades of meaning. So it can refer to forgiveness, cleansing, ransom, and averting God's wrath. We'll see all of these different kind of dynamics at play as we move through the chapter. And certainly the one here is cleansing. It's a little bit like, you're like, why does God's stuff need cleansed? And you remember in Leviticus, the sin and impurities of the people, well, they spread and they pollute things, including God's palace tent gets polluted by the sins and impurities of the people. And it's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you all do this, but I do this and maybe it's going to be a little embarrassing for me. But think of a microwave, okay? I have a microwave. I'm sure you probably do too. And what you do, if you're like me because you're lazy, uh, you get whatever it is you're going to put in the microwave and you throw it in there and you definitely don't cover it. Right? And you hit the button and it, it cooks and things explode all up everywhere. And it's no big deal because nobody can really see it in there. Right? And so you open the microwave, take your thing out, and you definitely don't clean that bad boy. You just shut the door. Right? Out of sight, out of mind, no problem. And what happens as you do that over the course of like a year is that food pollution collects in there. And it gets really, really gross to the point where, you know, you can't stand it. And so, you know, eventually... You clean it, and then it's, it's clean again. And what's going on here is a similar thing. The sin and impurities of the people throughout the year accumulate on God's stuff. Makes it dirty is the image we're supposed to have. He is the holy God. He's dwelling among an unholy people, and their unholiness is accumulating and staining, polluting even the things through which they come to God, the places of God's own dwelling. And if it's not dealt with, well, they will die. Do you remember that in chapter 15, verse 31? God says to Moses and Aaron, you must keep the Israelites from their uncleanness so they do not die by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. And so one of the primary things that's going on in this chapter is they are cleansing the tabernacle so that they do not die because of the accumulation of their sin and impurity pollution on God's stuff. It's incredible. And so that's the first ceremony. He's going through, he's making this purification offering and it is cleansing the tabernacle. And that other imagery that goes along with the purification offering is also still at play. Sacrifice dies in place of the people. And the blood of that sacrifice cleanses the temple. It also represents how the people are being cleansed 
of their sin and of their unrighteousness. People can be forgiven on the basis of this substitutionary sacrifice. The next part of this ceremony that's unique and certainly the most interesting is that which relates to the Azazel goat. You can see that in verse 8. Let me, let me read it to you. After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, remember these two goats are for the purification offering of the people. After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel is the Hebrew. You might have, like the CSB does, uninhabitable place. Or you might have Azazel, or you might have scapegoat in your translation. And the reason for that is that this word, Azazel, or name, Azazel, only occurs three times in the Bible, and all three of them are in this chapter. And what that means is nobody is really sure what the term means. And there's actually pretty good evidence for a few different viewpoints. And so the first one is that it would be an uninhabitable place. This goat is designated to go to a place where life cannot continue to flourish, where it will certainly die. The place is uninhabitable. Another option is that Azazel is actually the name of a demon or a creature that God has created to rule over a specific part of the land geographically. And so it represents that this goat goes outside of the land of Israel where God's holiness is into a land where, that is just polluted with sin. And the, the picture is that sin is going back among the demons where it belongs. So Azazel is a proper name in that interpretation. Uh, another one is that the word Azazel actually means complete destruction. Etymologically, there's a good argument to be made there. It's, you know, it's, this goat is set aside to go before the Lord, and this second goat is set aside for complete destruction. The last one was popularized by William Tyndale when he was doing his translation of the Bible in the 15th century, 15th century, you know, a few hundred years ago, like five-ish. And, and he just basically said, this is a compound word. It comes from ez, meaning goat, and azazel, meaning to go away or to disappear. He said, this is the goat that departs, scapegoat. And I actually like that particular translation of it because it helps us to understand the function of this goat. This goat is to take the sins of the people away from the camp that they're in, away from the holiness of God. And this ceremony is, is really neat. Look with me at verse 20. When he's finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat, the scapegoat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land. And then the man will release it. Can you imagine being at this ceremony? The whole day you've been fasting, not working. All of Israel is gathered, thousands and thousands of people. And it's kind of quiet and sober. Can't really hear anything except for the bleeding of sacrificial animals above the quiet. 
And even that is eventually deadened by the priest's work. You stand there in silence, tension in the air, as the high priest goes into the tabernacle alone with the blood of sacrifices, sprinkles them, the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat, and on the incense altar, and before the incense altar. And then if you're lucky enough to be able to see, you see him come out to the altar of burnt offering and put blood on the horns and sprinkle blood on top of it, making purification for these places, purification for sin. And you see him with the scapegoat. Take both his hands and lean on the head of the goat, identifying the goat with himself and with the people of Israel. As he puts their sins on the goat's head, confessing. And I, I don't know if he, he confessed in a short prayer like some suggest. But can you imagine what it would have been like? He's, he's got both hands on the head of this scapegoat and he rattles off a multitude of sins among the people. And this is what you hear. We confess, Almighty God, we have been abusers and addicts, haters of parents, lazy, angry, given to drunkenness and sexual misconduct. We've been worldly. We've loved money and the things of the world more than you, O oh God. We've minimized our sins and magnified the sins of others. We've found our worth in achievements. We've yelled at children. We've gossiped and slandered about others. We've been quick to criticize, slow to love. We've been guilty of thinking the worst about others. We're full of envy and discontent. We've chosen to worry about ourselves rather than trust you. We've been self-righteous, self-pitying, self-aggrandizing, self-interested and selfish. Oh God, our sins are many. There are more. There are more than we could even confess to you. More that we've forgotten. More that we are unaware of. We confess our sinfulness. This is what you hear as the high priest confesses all these sins on to the head of the goat. And there you are listening. Do you think that's, that's my sin? That's my sin that's going on the head of the goat. And then you watch the man appointed for the task lead this goat out of the camp, splitting people like a sea. You watch it come to the edge of the people you watch it as it goes to the horizon and eventually disappears. You think, there goes my sin. It's gone. My sin, my wrongdoing, my condemnation was put onto the head of that scapegoat and now it is gone forever. Psalm 103 illustrates this beautifully. Verse 10. God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That's the picture here. 
East and the West, they never meet. Scapegoat is carrying the sins of the people away from them. The scapegoat carries their sins away from them and dies instead of them. Sometimes people come to this chapter and they're like, man, the scapegoat's so lucky it gets to live. No! It gets the sins of the people and then it dies. And the people made sure it dies. The Mishnah actually said that uh, the person appointed to the task would actually cast the goat off of a cliff to ensure its death. This is sin being taken away from the people. The death that the people deserve being died by a substitute. This is a beautiful and wonderful day, this day of atonement. Sin forgiven and forgotten through a substitute. And yet the day of atonement is is the light of the moon pointing us to the greater light of the sun. The day of the atonement is, is, is good, but you recognize at the end of the chapter there is a permanent statute. It needs to continue permanently, in perpetuity, forever. And yet, it no longer continues. Because it was just meant to point us to the ultimate day of atonement. We call it Good Friday. On Good Friday, Jesus went into the presence of God, not clothed in opulence, but stripped of all his dignity and worth. Indeed, he humbled himself to the point of death. On Good Friday, Jesus entered into the presence of God, not with incense or by the blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood. Indeed, on Good Friday, Jesus secured for us our redemption. On Good Friday, Jesus became our scapegoat. So that when we confess our sins to God, Our sins are put on his head. He dies in our place. And our sins are forgiven and forgotten, removed as far from us as the east is from the west. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. Jesus is the scapegoat. We must come to him confessing our sins so that we might live in the presence of God. This is the only sacrifice that works. And we know it works Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Good Friday is good because Jesus got up on Resurrection Sunday. He took the keys of death and opened the door of the grave and walked out. 
The light of the world was not ultimately slain by darkness. Indeed, the grave could not hold him. Jesus didn't just die for sins. He rose from the dead to vindicate himself and his sacrifice. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that his followers will get what his blood paid for. Jesus' continued life as our perfect and eternal high priest means we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. That he ever lives and pleads for you and me. This is good news. I mean, this is the gospel. You and I are sinners. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to be consumed by his holiness. Not just in death, but in death stretched out across eternity in hell. And instead of rightly, he could have rightly sentenced us to that. He chose to extend us mercy. He chose to send a scapegoat. So that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, even though we die, yet shall we live. So that when we come and put our faith in Jesus, death is not the last word. Hell is not our destiny. Rather, we, like Jesus, will rise from the dead unto eternal life in the presence of God. I mean, this this is good news. Friends, God's holiness is so much greater than we imagine. His grace is so much greater than we ever wished. He saves people like you and like me. This is good news that we ought to rejoice in, Christian. And that we ought to endeavor to make known among those who are dying for their own sins rather than trusting in the scapegoat. God puts the sins of his people onto a substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ so that our sins can be forgiven and forgotten. Worthy is the scapegoat, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you have loved us. Despite our rebellion against you, despite our continued failures, despite our insistence on doing things our way rather than listening to your voice, you have sought to save us. Indeed, this is why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost, and we confess we were lost. We pray with hearts full of thankfulness that because of your kindness, Mercy and love, we have been found in Christ. We were blind, but now we see. We were dead, but now we have been made alive. We ask that you would help us 
to walk in the newness of this life, not fearing death or circumstance or anything in this world, but living in light of your awesome holiness, living knowing that you are the master of life and death and that you have the power to raise the dead. We pray that you would help us to live now in light of then, when evil is no more, hunger is no more, and mourning is no more, and all that remains is celebration of the Lamb who was slain. All that remains is the new adventures together with the Lion of the tribe of Judah, in whose name we pray, amen.